open your Bibles to 3 John. In the Red Pewback Bible, this is page 1026. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. God has children, but he has no grandchildren. Think about that statement. God has children. We can all be sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.27. We're born into the kingdom of God when we're baptized, John chapter 3, verse 5. But God does not have any grandchildren. We're either a child of God or we're not. We're going to talk for a few minutes tonight about avoiding generational loss. It is an all too common reality that one generation knows the Lord, but the next one does not. Let's look at some passages we introduce this idea. God is absolutely concerned about us teaching the next generation. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter six this evening. Deuteronomy chapter six and listen to what God told the Israelites to do. In Deuteronomy chapter six, teaching the next generation was given first priority. It was a emphasis that God wanted his people to give. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 2, the commandments God says, I'm giving them to you and to your son and to your grandson all the days of your life. And then when you look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 6, these are the words God says, which I command you today, they shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit by the house or when you walk by the way or when you lie down or when you rise up. Constantly teaching the next generation. That was God's will for the Israelites. Turn over in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 48. Psalm chapter 48. This idea of teaching the next generation, God having children but no grandchildren. It's always been on God's mind. Psalm 48. And as you find that psalm, notice at the end of Psalm 48 in verses 12 and 13. Psalm 48 beginning in verse 12. Walk about Zion, go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, verse 14, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. God has always been passionate about his people, emphasizing passing faith on to the next generation. Because God has children, but he has no grandchildren. One more passage from our Old Testament. Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 in your Bible. And listen at the beginning of that Psalm in verse one. I'm gonna read a few verses. Psalm 78, beginning in verse one. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Psalm 78, verse two now. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, 
telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Verse five, but he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and forget not the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Three passages, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 48, Psalm 78, and there are many more in the Bible that emphasize the need for one generation to teach the next. For those who are older to teach those who are younger, for those who are parents to teach their children and grandparents to teach their grandchildren. The concept is avoiding generational loss. We don't want the next generation to be lost and it's all too common even today. It was common in the Bible As God's people, we have a responsibility to think about this concept of avoiding generational loss. What can we do to help pass faith and a love and a reverence for God on to the next generation? Let's talk first of all tonight about the reality of this generational loss. The idea that parents can know the Lord, but their children might not, or their grandchildren might not. That one generation can have a great relationship with God, but the next generation has no knowledge of God. This is very common even in Scripture. You think about a number of examples of the reality of this. Aaron had some sons in in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. Now, everything we know about Aaron, he was not a perfect man. After all, he's the guy that built that golden calf, remember, in the book of Exodus. But Aaron was a man who was the priest. Not only was he the priest, he was the high priest. And his sons were given his priestly responsibilities as they got older. They did not listen to the Lord's word. They did not obey the Lord's commandments. And the Lord struck them dead. Two men who walked into the temple, the tabernacle, and very casually and flippantly, it seems, offered strange fire to the Lord. One generation that knows God, not perfect, but knows God. The next generation destroyed because of their lack of knowledge and lack of obedience. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. There's some passages worth bringing to your attention. The reality of generational loss. 1 Samuel chapter 3. There was a man named Eli, and he too was a priest. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, God sent Samuel. You remember how Samuel was the little boy that Hannah prayed for, that he would send, that God would send a a child to Hannah, and Samuel was was the child. And so she gave the child to the Lord. He grew up in the tabernacle. And in 1 Samuel 3, God is communicating with Samuel. And he's telling him about Eli. In 1 Samuel 3 verse 13, God says, I have told Eli that I will judge his house forever. For the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and Eli did not restrain them. Now, this is in reference to what his sons were doing in 1 Samuel chapter 2. They were were doing all kinds of ungodly things with the Israelites regarding the sacrifices that they brought to the tabernacle. They were taking parts of the animals that they were not supposed to take. They were doing all kinds of profiteering 
and Eli did not restrain his adult sons. But you almost have to wonder whether this was a practice that started earlier in these young men's lives when they were much younger, that Eli refused to restrain them. He lost a generation because of the fact that he refused to restrain his sons. Turn over to 1 Samuel 8, since you're there in the book of 1 Samuel, and look at Samuel himself. This little boy in 1 Samuel 3 grows up, and in 1 Samuel 8, the Bible says Samuel himself got married and had children. It came to pass when Samuel was old, 1 Samuel 8 verse 1, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons, verse 3, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. And this is what precipitates in verses 4 and 5, the Israelites coming. And that was their, that was their reason to ask, we want a king. Samuel, make a king over us like the nations around us. Your sons are not good men. They're not good judges. For our purposes tonight, I want you to see So what we know about Aaron and what we know about Eli and what we know about Samuel, these are godly men. These are good men. These are men who knew the Lord. And yet the next generation was not anything like their fathers. You think about David and how many of his children turned out. First Kings chapter one, verse six. You think about the Ninevites in Jonah chapter three. Jonah preached to this pagan people, these Gentile people, and they repented, the Ninevites. But it was about a century later when the book of Nahum was written. Nahum was the next generation of Ninevites and they had not learned the lessons of their fathers. One generation of Ninevites was saved by God. The next generation of Ninevites was destroyed. They refused to know the Lord. You think about Josiah the king. He was a good king. But he raised a young man named Jehoahaz, that was his son, and Jehoahaz did not walk in the ways of his father, and he certainly did not please the Lord, 2 Kings 23 and verse 32. I'm just saying in this point that the reality of generational loss, it's very common. It's happened to some mighty fine people over the centuries, even in the New Testament in the prodigal son parable. The father represents God, doesn't he? Nobody's going to accuse God of being a bad father. Nobody's going to accuse God of being a bad parent. And yet he has a son who slaps him in the face basically and says, I want my inheritance. I'm going to go into the far country and I'm going to spend it with wasteful living. We have a responsibility, all of us, to think about the next generation and how we can make an impact and a difference in their lives so that they can know God. The reality of generational loss is all too common. Next, as we think about the reality, let's turn our attention to the process. How does this happen? How does it happen that one person knows the Lord, but his descendants do not? How does it happen that somebody who has a strong faith, who is knowledgeable in the ways of God, who knows what it means to serve God, raises somebody like the sons of Eli or the sons of Samuel? or even that prodigal, how does this happen? I'd like to suggest that there are three kinds of faith. Three kinds of faith. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 1 and look at verses four and five. 2 Timothy chapter one, verses four and five.
In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, the scripture says that Paul greatly desires to see Timothy. Timothy was a young man. He was somebody that Paul took under his wing and he trained him in how to be a servant, how to be a child of God. And Timothy was somebody that Paul could trust. He had a great a, a zeal for God. I greatly desire to see you, he says, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. And then he says this in verse 5, verse, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. What Timothy has, according to Paul, is a genuine, a sincere faith. He has the kind of faith that has made a decision on its own. He's the kind of young man who has said, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be loyal to God. I'm going to follow Jesus even if nobody else around me does. He has his own genuine, real, sincere faith. And again, notice that it dwelt first in Timothy's grandmother and also later in his mother. And what you see is three generations grandmother, mother, and now Timothy, all who possess a sincere, zealous faith in the Lord. But sometimes this is what happens. In fact, all too frequently, this is what happens. The next generation, instead of possessing a real sincere faith, they take on what we kind of might call a borrowed faith. A borrowed faith. What are some characteristics of borrowed faith? I'll tell you. Borrowed faith knows the answers to Bible questions. Borrowed faith can do really well in Bible Bowl, for example, and there's nothing in the world wrong with Bible Bowl. That's a great thing for people to be able to answer questions from God's word, to have a knowledge of God's word. But borrowed faith knows the answers, but it never gets around to actually making that faith personal. We never make the decision that this is going to be what I believe. And especially, especially, especially borrowed faith crumples. It is destroyed when difficult times hit. When somebody pushes back because of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. When somebody says, I don't believe that you ought to be acting this way or serving the Lord in the way that you are, or when all of the people that you are friends with and all the people that you are a peer with, they're doing something different from what God would have them to do. And you just kind of yield to that pressure. Borrowed faith does that. And what, I can, what I'm concerned about as, as a gospel preacher, as a husband, as a father, what I'm concerned about is making sure that we're not just settling as a congregation, that we're not just settling as parents for our kids having borrowed faith. You see some examples of borrowed faith even in scripture. In Acts chapter nine, verses five and six, Saul of Tarsus, when he stopped on the road to Damascus, Damascus he asked two questions. He asks, first of all, who are you, Lord? And then secondly, he asks, what would you have me to do? Borrowed faith answers the second question without really giving a lot of attention to the first. If I could say it that way, what would you have me to do? I'll tell you what you ought to do. Let's look at the Bible and see what we ought to do without ever answering the question and talking much about the relationship we're trying to have with God. Who are you, Lord? And we need to be careful as the people of God that we're answering both of those questions with balance. 
Who is the Lord? And what does he want? And is he personal to me? Because I can't pass on to somebody else what I don't have myself. Who are you, Lord? What would you have me to do? Borrowed faith only really answers the second question most of the time. Borrowed faith, as you look at 2 Timothy, look at chapter 3, verse 5, and listen to what he says. After listing a litany of sins in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, he says, these people have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. One of the ways in which we can have a form of godliness and deny its power is by trying to walk on both sides of the fence. By trying to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We can have a form of godliness. We can have an appearance of godliness. We can have a borrowed faith and yet deny the power that God intends for our faith to have. We can also have a borrowed faith by really not knowing who it is that we're trying to please, by not really thinking about the reality of God, about the reality and the historical resurrection and the present existence of Jesus Christ, those kinds of things. What I'm saying is sometimes our faith can give all the right answers and we can say all the right things and yet when it comes to actually knowing God and having a relationship with him and depending on him and looking to him and saying, I want you God more than anything else in my life, if we're not doing those things, there's something amiss. And if the next generation isn't doing those things, it ought to concern us, it ought to bother us. Second Timothy chapter four, verse 10, Demas has forsaken me. Why, Paul? Because he loved this present world. If you're a parent, listen up. The number one reason why young people leave the church is because they're in love with the world. And I fear that a lot of us are teaching our kids to be wise in the ways of this world. That really bothers me, it concerns me. I fear that what we're doing with our young people is we want them to be loved and accepted and appreciated and celebrated. We want them to be all those things in the world around them. And in the process of doing that, we may well be settling for just a borrowed faith. Because if it's a real faith, Real faith sometimes has to say no. Real faith sometimes has to look at an opportunity. Real faith sometimes has to look at something that otherwise may be good in and of itself and say, but I can't serve Jesus as I need to if I take that opportunity. We need to be careful because if we're teaching our kids that it's okay to love the world, James 4.4 says, whoever loves the world makes himself an enemy of God can't have it both ways. You can't serve both God and mammon. And we try because we love our kids. I get it. And we want our kids to grow up to be successful. And in this culture, in this society, successful means they've got a good paying job and they can support a family on their own. And you know, I don't want them living with me forever. I understand. But if that's what success is, we may well be settling for borrowed faith instead of sincere, real faith. Think about that. And then, if there is a generation that grows up with borrowed faith, you know what's gonna to happen to the next generation? It's an easy step, no faith. I've observed, just anecdotally, 
I've observed that it seems like to me that almost every generation is a notch or two less spiritual than the one before. And that's not to knock any generation. I'm just saying in our families, that's kind of the way it works. And maybe that's something for us as parents and grandparents to take seriously. My zeal or lack thereof as a parent, it's gonna fall off some in the next generation. Grandparents falling off to parents, parents falling off to their kids. We need to think about the reality of generational loss. And by the way, this does not absolve young people. This does not absolve anybody of saying, well, you know, my parents didn't really make this an emphasis and real sincere faith wasn't anything that they were serious about. Doesn't matter. You need to serve the Lord. You need to do what's right. You need to obey his voice, regardless of how your parents raised you, your grandparents. At the same time, we have a role to play and this needs to concern us the process of it. I taught a parenting class, I don't know, a year or two ago. And this was a constant theme in the parenting class. Think of your relationship with your family as one long extended conversation. Everything you do with your family, everything you say to your family, your attitudes and how you interact with your family, the things we talked about this morning in the lesson, all of those things are constantly communicating to the people around you about what's important, about what they should do, about how you esteem them. It's constantly a conversation. It's one big, long, extended conversation. And sometimes people get really upset about the, you know, if if you look at this timeline, you think about how long your kids live with you, 18 plus years. And we get really concerned about this event or this event or this event. Don't be so concerned about specific events. They need to concern us, but don't get so focused on those specific events that you miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture is there's a long 18, 20 year long conversation going on with your kids. What are they hearing? What are you saying to them? Do we tell each other that we love each other? Is that something that's regularly heard in our homes? Do we talk about the Lord and how he's gonna provide when our family has hard times? He's gonna be there for us because we know we're serving the Lord and he's never let one of his people starve to death. That's what the Bible says. Is that the way we talk about about God in our homes? It's one long extended conversation. As you think about passing on faith to the next generation, the question we gotta ask is, what's being emphasized in this conversation? What are our kids and our grandkids hearing from us? And if we really put a fine point on it, sometimes we've been saying all the wrong things to our kids. Do not teach your children and grandchildren to be wise in the ways of the world. You teach them to love God. Teach them to know the Lord. Teach them that the most important thing that they could ever do with their lives is be a New Testament Christian and it doesn't matter what they choose for a career. If they can do that and in all good conscience serve the Lord, that's what's important. That's what needs to be heard consistently in our homes. They need to know that you love them and they need to know even more than that, that God loves them. When's the last time you told your kids that God loves them? Do they hear those kinds of things? Think of parenting, think of being a grandparent as one long extended conversation. It is critical. It is important for us to think about it that way. 
because firsthand faith, real, genuine, sincere faith, it's passed on from one generation to the other. It's something we need to think about and give attention to. Finally tonight, as we think about this process of avoiding generational loss, what can be done about it? What specifically does God desire of us? I've got to give you some suggestions, just some practical suggestions to think about, to pray about. The most practical thing I can say along these lines is that you and I cannot pass on to someone else what we don't possess. Parents and grandparents, if loving the Lord is not what you're all about, if you're putting on a show, I'm telling you, your kids are smart and they will see it in an instant. They may not listen to what you say. As a matter of fact, they won't. What they'll do is they'll emulate what they see you doing. They will follow your example 110% of the time. And if you're trying to live your life with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, if you're trying to be a friend of the world, a friend of God, if you're trying to serve both God and mammon, if that's what you're doing with your life, your kids will see it. Your grandkids will see it. You can't pass on to them what you don't possess yourself. A wholehearted devotion to God. If you don't have it, you can't give it to anybody else. What is it that our kids need to see? They need to see a sincere love for Jesus. That he really is all the world to us. That he really is our everything. He really is our all. They need to see a fervent prayer life. 1 Peter 5, or 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing, not just at mealtimes, but this is what we do because we love the Lord. We pray, we talk to him. We bring our problems and our challenges and our issues before the Lord. Do you pray with your family? Do you pray with your spouse? What do they need to see? A passion for God. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37, love the Lord your God with all. A-L-L, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a passion for God that's being discussed. It matters what we choose to put on our schedule. It matters where we say we need to be when God's people are meeting together. It matters. What do they need to see? A faith willing to suffer? If you're serving Jesus Christ faithfully, there are going to be some things that you suffer through no fault of your own. Not because you did anything wrong, as a matter of fact, to the contrary, because you're doing things that please the Lord, you're going to suffer. And how you handle that is going to have a tremendous impact on the next generation, I promise. You may think your kids don't see it. They do. They know. They know what makes your heart hurt. And they know how you're handling things. And they know whether or not you're trying to honor and please God in all this. Hebrews 5 verse 8, the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And our kids learn what it's like to obey God through watching us do those very same things. If every time things get difficult, we turn belligerent and we turn into Mr. Critic and we turn into the kind of person that cuts and runs and I'm going somewhere else, I'm going to do something else, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out. If every single time we hurt, that's how we respond, guess what our kids learn to do? What do our kids need to see? They need to see a servant's heart. The kind of heart that's willing to find needs and meet them to the glory of God. 
Mark 10:45 has been on our screen more than once today for a reason. Because when we become Christians, we become servants. This is the way we live. What do you need to put in your extended conversation? These kinds of things and more. Because generational loss is all too common a reality. It doesn't have to be. But keep in mind as well, every single one of the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that, every one of them is a free moral agent. And even if in our extended conversation we say all the things that we need to say, number one, we're not perfect. And number two, they're free moral agents and they have a choice to make as well. Our choice, our desire for generations to come is that they have a real, sincere, genuine faith. Our prayer and our labor is to that extent and for that reason. And what we need to do as the people of God, people of God here in Katy is think more and more, are we passing on a real, sincere faith to the next generation? And what does that need to look like? Thanks so much for listening to the lesson this evening. We need to have a concern for souls and that includes the souls of the next generation. The Bible tells us that God loves all of us. He wants all of us to come into a right relationship with him. And that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ, we put him on in baptism. And maybe you're here tonight, you need to respond to the gospel because you want to obey Jesus. You wanna serve him. We've had a number of baptisms here lately. It's been a wonderful time in the history of the Katy Church just the last few months. It's been a blessing. But you know what? God's not finished and neither do we need to be. We want you, if you need to respond to the gospel, we want you to come forward and to put Christ on in baptism as well. If we can help you do that this evening, if you need to respond and ask for prayers, whatever your need, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.